turn with me to Acts chapter 13, and um, I want you to know that next week, next week, we're going to interview uh, the people who went to uh, Hungary, Budapest. So come next week. We want to talk to you about uh, what happened in Hungary. We wanted to do it this week, but I forgot it was Mother's Day. Couldn't steal the thunder from the moms. Uh, hey, another thing is, we're in old school church, man. We're just deciding not to turn the AC on so we can be like the 1800s. No, actually, we're just about ready to uh, uh, get these uh, going again. Uh, long story, they've been out since December, uh, had an accident here in town, and we're negotiating with the insurance company, and those should be coming soon. Today's not too bad, but it's coming, right? So we're going to get those, and uh, Lord willing, and uh, you're going to feel more comfortable in here. Uh, you'll be wearing your jean jackets and your parkas soon in here, okay? So... Uh, we're sorry about that, but just hang with us here for uh, another couple weeks. We, um, I'm going to ask the folks back there, Maura, to put up the map uh, of the book of Acts. And uh, we're in the middle of Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, we have uh, now, f we're going to find ourselves sort of there uh, in Antioch. Remember, there's seven Antiochs we know of. Here's two of them. The uh, church in Antioch, Syria, sort of is now home base as the first missionary journey launches out into the modern world. And uh, so we're in the middle of chapter 13, which is this first missionary journey, okay? And I want to review something for us. I want us to remember what it is that Acts is telling us so that we don't get lost down in the details, although I want to get into the details, of Paul's first missionary journey. Remember, in the Bible, in the book of Acts, there's three missionary journeys we're going to encounter. Those are the back half of the book of Acts. And one way you could describe the book of Acts is just this. If you don't remember anything else about the book of Acts, remember this. How the gospel got from Jerusalem to Rome, and Rome's sort of to your left there on, on the map. It, you, I don't think you can see it there. One of the ways you could describe Acts is how did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome? Why is Rome so important? Because it was the center of all things power and cosmopolitan, and from there, the way in which Rome dominated the ancient world, the gospel then spread even more like wildfire. And so uh, we see in this back half, and we're just starting into the back half, we're seeing how the, the gospel is getting to all the nations. And you'll recall, won't you with me, that the first thing that we're learning about the book of Acts is that the church has a mission. And that mission in the book of Acts, don't let anybody ever tell you different, is the same mission today until everybody hears the gospel. Remember, in the book of Acts, at the uh, first chapter, Jesus said to his followers, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, verse 8, chapter 1, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that's what we're doing. I know it's hot. I know it's Mother's Day. But you hang in here because your mission 
Whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or uh, you uh, or work for waste management or uh, uh, whether you're a store clerk, whether you're a stay-at-home dad or a state or whatever, mom, it, it doesn't matter. Your mission is the same if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ. It's that you're to be uh, filled. I want you to mark this. I want you to, you're to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and take the gospel to your Jerusalem and then to all the ends of the earth, out, out, out. And we're to do that as a church. It doesn't change. In fact, if you go to the last chapter of Luke, well, let's do this. Let's go to the last chapter of Matthew. <clears throat> I want to show you something. There's something else we're to be doing. Go to the last chapter of Matthew. And it says this in the Great Commission. Jesus said this. Uh, that we are to, verse 19, go. That sounds sort of elementary, but it's not really. Here's what Americans do. Stay. And I don't mean you have to go to Hungary or you have to go to Nepal or you have to go to wherever, but you have to get out of your comfort zone and I have to get out of my comfort zone. And our comfort zone is our kingdom, our beautiful house, our beautiful cars, our beautiful fences, our beautiful IRAs, our beautiful um, vacations. But no, we're called to go. Whether that means across the street or down the street, or somewhere. You understand. Your other mission is to, and it was their mission, is not just to preach the gospel. Oh, the gospel must be preached. But you're to make disciples. And disciple making, listen folks, is sacrificial. Why? Because disciple making means, again, you don't just stay in your comfortable world. You bring people along with you. You preach to them the gospel, they enter into the family of God, but now you train them up. And the way that you train them up, yeah, you can train them in a classroom a little bit, but they need to go with you in life. And who are you discipling? I wonder if I ask you to raise your hand, do you have a specific person you're discipling? And is somebody discipling you? Both ways. So that's something that we're to do, and it's to all the nations, and we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, verse 20. And look, we're to teach them that Jesus commands and to remember that he's always with us. Now look, look, what are we doing here? What is Acts teaching us here? Acts is teaching us, I've read you the scriptures, I think the first thing that strikes me about Acts is that you and I, listen to this, must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is the church at large anemic and powerless? Because we have a bunch of Christians, I believe, who don't recognize and understand that not only do you need to be indwelt by the Spirit, but that you must be overwhelmed or filled or baptized with the Spirit. And we do, and we need that, because if you 
read this, that's the prerequisite. That's the thing that happens to the church so that they can go out. It's not like, let's go out and then let's sort of just be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that brings gentle boldness to witness. You could look it up. Just read the book of Acts. They keep getting filled. They keep getting filled. And these people are being put in prison. They're being beaten. And they get up. And instead of being discouraged, the love of God fills their heart. And they march back to share the gospel. So I think what Acts is telling us, first of all, is that we must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now let's take a time out. I got to tell you, there are three books in my life on the baptism of the Holy Spirit that have impacted me in a great way. I'll give them to you. You ready? The first one is Living Water by Pastor Chuck Smith. He started Calvary Chapel. I'd start there. The second one is The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit by R.A. Torrey. It's downstairs. But one that I've gotten in the last six months that's completely blown me away also, besides the other two, is Unspeakable Joy by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And the reason that I've been blown away by Unspeakable Joy by Martin Lloyd-Jones is Martin Lloyd-Jones is in the heart of Reformed theology. And many people in, the, in that sector of Christianity who are brothers and sisters and we love, they deny that there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his first chapter in this unspeakable joy, and he's at the epicenter of Reformed theology, he basically says this in the first chapter. I'll let you read it. But he says this. If you read the book of Acts and you deny that there's a second filling or a baptism of the Holy Spirit separate and apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you're being intellectually dishonest. Now, that's him saying that, not me. And so it's a fascinating thing. And that book has brought real clarity to me as well as the other two. Anyway, I think that's one of the things it's teaching us. And listen, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, now everybody starts to think, okay, baptism of the Holy Spirit, he's going to start talking about tongues. But that's not really it. When you see baptism of the Holy Spirit, it gives these people a boldness to witness as it gives them Uh, a testimony of what God has done. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, he says this is what is produced, and I think he's right, if you look at the people who have described this experience, by the way, by the way, some of the Calvinistic people, the most Calvinistic people in the history of the church, Jonathan Edwards, ever heard of him? They describe this experience in their personal testimonies. You can read them in Jones's book. It's fascinating. But I want you to, you, you, some of you are there going, well, what is he talking about? Well, listen, they describe this experience that they've had after salvation that gives them an overwhelming sense of God's glory an unusual sense of the presence of God and an an assurance. Now listen, and an assurance of the love of God to us in Jesus Christ. Not just, you know, you're sort of intellectual one. Yes, that's wonderful. We intellectually know it, but it's come to them in their heart. And he calls that the greatest assurance, the greatest assurance of the baptism. 
Because now you're going to, as you're assured in his love, as you're assured of his sense of presence, when you're in a prison, what do you do when you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Here's what you do. Oh, Lord, why'd you put me here? I thought I was your child of God. What are you doing, Lord? You have no idea what you're doing. I'm in prison. I'm Paul. I'm really probably the most experienced church planner that there ever will be. And Lord, you've put me in prison. That's what people who are not baptized with the Holy Spirit say. But when people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you know what they do? They sing in prison. They say, I'm so assured of your presence and love. Lord, wherever you put me, boom. Whatever you tell me to do, boom, I'll say yes, Lord, because I'm so overwhelmed with you. And that's what we see in the book of Acts everywhere. And I want to tell you, I don't think it should be abnormal. I think it should be the normal experience of all of us as we seek this out in the Lord. Okay, baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what Acts is teaching us about. What else is it teaching us it's teaching us to live, how to live in a pluralistic society that hates the idea of Christianity. You think we're unique in this time because of the cancel culture? Read the book of Acts. The cancel culture was get out some large stones and knock your brains in. That's what the cancel culture was back then. We get ridiculed at the cubicle. Oh, we're so in such deep trouble. No, these people, right? They lived in a pluralistic society. And this book shows us how to navigate that by the resource and strength of the Holy Spirit. I also think this book tells us and shows us what to share when we share the gospel, the good news. In fact, today, you're going to see a little bit different presentation of the gospel than you would with these guys and gals when they were in front of Jewish audiences. Everybody with me? I think it tells us something else, and this one's really important, and this is where we jump off and, or jump on and start going today. Last week, uh, we... Uh, we're in the middle of the missionary journey, the first one. And Paul and Barnabas get to Antioch and Pisidia, and Paul gives a sermon. Even, anyway, he gives a sermon, which is fascinating when you study the sermon, okay? Here's why it's fascinating. Because Paul's sermon is very much, now listen, you gotta think about this. Think about this for a minute. I know it's hot, but think about this. Paul's sermon closely mirrors the sermons of Peter and Stephen in chapter 13. Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts, which you do, Paul heard these sermons prior to the time that he was a Christian. When he was killing Christians, when he was bloodthirsty for Christians, Paul heard these sermons before he was a Christian. Wake up! And here's why wake up. Because the Bible, the word of God, never comes back void. It always does its intended work. It always does. Here's a murderer of Christians affected by the word of God and the witness of God. And he started to fashion his sermons 
after these people after he got saved. Don't give up on people. If you ever say this to yourself or to somebody else, check your spirit, go back and pray for them. Oh, they'll never get saved. Paul did. If Paul gets saved, everybody, there's hope for everybody. And the Bible never comes back void. I got this little hang up. If you are at a church or you're a person who puts this, you know what I hate? I'm just going to be honest with you. I hate when I go past a church and I find this cute little saying on the board. It's funny. I laugh. I'm not being legalistic, but I'm like, dude, you are missing an opportunity here. Put the word of God out there. It's going to hit somebody by the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't put the cute sayings out. Put the word of God out. Do you believe it? Yes, we believe it. So here, if they get to Antioch, the one in Pisidia is the name of it. That's up in the area of Galatia. It's in like the Turkey area now. And Paul gives this unbelievable sermon. It's wonderful. And he calls upon the Old Testament um, prophecies. Why does he do that? Because he was in a synagogue. You want to shoot up the picture of a synagogue? He was in a synagogue and synagogues showed up during the Babylonian exile, a long time before this. And he went in there and he gave this speech, but in synagogues, why would he go there? Because the Jewish people knew the scriptures, Old Testament, that predicted the Messiah. They were prepared. He loved them. He was a Jew himself also a Gentile. But anyway, and so he would go in there and he would go into the synagogues. That was his MO if there was a synagogue in the city. Now, we went through that sermon, but I want you to see something. Look in verse 42 of chapter 13. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Can you believe that? Remember, write this down, Romans 16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And Paul said, we're going to take it to the Jew first, but then the Gentile. And here you see that playing out. And the Jews, by and large, in a corporate sense, reject the gospel. Although there are a few Jewish people in the Bible times that do surrender their life and become Christians. But the Gentiles are like, give us more, give us more. Not all. But the Gentiles here begged Preach next Sabbath. You're amazing. These words, we've never heard it. And when the congregation, verse 43, had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He's the uncle to John Mark. John Mark left the first missionary journey. Paul and him had a a conflict. They later make up. So Paul and Barnabas, who's speaking to them, listen, this is my final point. And there's many more points, but my final point about what we're learning about the book of Acts, here it is, that they were to continue in the grace of God. You're like, okay, that's pastor speak. And I want you to, I want uh, Mora to put up for me uh, this quote from Alan Redpath, because a lot of people don't know what grace is. A lot of people don't know what grace is. When you are asked as a church To continue in the grace of God, you're like, okay, great pastor. That means I just have to give people a pass when they're being bad people. That's what we think grace is. That's not grace. If you want this quote, by the way, you can email Sarah Zimmer and she'll get it to you. 
Now, Alan Redpath is commenting on 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but this is what he says. What does Paul mean by grace? Paul, what is the word grace? What is God's grace? It's just one word which sums up all the blessings which come to our lives. Listen, undeservedly from God. Do you, listen, time out. Do you deserve salvation? Do I deserve salvation? No, the Bible tells us we deserve eternal death. Here's the other thing. Do you deserve the Holy Spirit? Do you, what did you do? That nothing, it's an undeserved gift. The person and work of the Holy Spirit. So when you read this, look, it's just one word which sums up all the blessings which come to our lives undeservedly from God through Christ our Lord. Primarily the word grace describes, listen, listen. When you hear grace, the Americans think, good, I can go sin and he'll forgive me. That's what Americans think. That's not grace at all. Grace is the disposition in the very nature of God, in his character, which is revealed in his eternal, unchanging, and pardoning love. What a way to say it. This is grace, a kindness, an overflowing disposition in the heart of God. But then God's dispositions are never passive or inactive. And grace, therefore, means that love that is expressed and displayed in action. Grace, love in action. You know, a lot of people like look and see a need and say, oh, my heart just goes out for them. That's not grace. The grace is when you go and help them. (laughs) Oh, I feel so bad for those people. Okay, well, what do we do? See, because God's kindness and grace is never passive or inactive. It means love that is expressed and displayed in action. And you can read that in 1 Corinthians 17 or 13. Love knows no limits to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It's still more than this. And this is what I want you to see. Grace is never fruitless. It's always fruitful and therefore the greatest meaning of grace is all the blessedness. Are you listening to this? This is what gets us up in the morning as Christians right here. Not because we have to do something. or It's this. It's the grace of God. It's always fruitful. It's all the blessedness that comes and all the lovely and beautiful things that take place and happen in the life of a man or woman who has come to know the indwelling Christ and the very nature of God dwelling in him by the Holy Spirit, and I would say the baptism of the Spirit. Grace is love, joy, peace, all those things. Thus, Paul, in effect, says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you in order that you might have all sufficiency in all things. You understand, I didn't know this for 10 years, no kidding. 10 years of my Christian life, I thought grace was for entering the family of God, salvation. I didn't realize grace was for everyday living. It's for all sufficiency in all things. You need God's help every day of every minute. And here's the beautiful part about it. Some of you think God's like Santa Claus. You be good during the year, you'll get good stuff. You don't know the very nature of God. His nature is that he wants to give out to you because he loves you and he's good towards you. You get it? And it, it's not because you're a good little boy or a good little girl. Cause quite frankly, I look around and none of you, no, I'm kidding. I'm pointing at me first. Honestly, 
I'm the chief here. And that is what wakes you up in the morning. That's how we live. And that's what Paul and Barnabas said to these churches. This is what they were preaching. Grace, not, oh, go out and sin, live like hell, and get forgiven. Not that. That's what Americans think. This is the grace. Read Titus. This is the grace that transform and, in fact, leads to the early church. Can you hardly believe this in Acts 17? Can you hardly believe that the early church was said to have turned the world upside down? That's how famous their gospel witness had become and the grace of God had become. They didn't hide it under a bushel. No. The light shone in the darkness. Nobody could be without excuse for these people. And why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and bold and assured. Okay. You're like, come on, let's go. I know, but we can't go until we know this and have this for ourselves. Have you had this experience with the Lord? Well, let's pray about it and think about it as God moves us out. Well, they're to continue in the grace of the Lord. And in verse 44, on the next Sabbath, look at this, the whole city almost came together to hear the word of God. Not the miracles. Miracles are great. Everybody here loves miracles. I love them. But what they came to hear was the word of God and the miracles confirmed it. And there should be miracles. But don't stray from God's word. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, look at this, they were filled with envy. That's what religion does. External outward religion brings envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. How did they grow bold? They said, we're going to be really bold now. No, they asked for a filling of the Holy Spirit. They grew bold. How? Because the Holy Spirit filled them up. And they said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Wow. That's bold. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles for the so the Lord has commanded us. I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That comes from Isaiah 42. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, that's funny, and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout, prominent women, and don't get the ladies angry, right? And the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul, Barnabas, and expelled them, and that's a really strong word in the Greek, like violently pushed them out expelled them uh, from their region, but they shook off the dust from their feet and the disciples, or, and came to Iconium. Let's put up the map again, please. And they came to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Folks, I want you to see something. You can't manufacture joy. Who here has, in this year, gone through really dire, difficult circumstances? Raise your hand. Yeah. Oh, only two of us. Yeah, man, I know there's a lot. We need a filling of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that accompanies the filling of the Holy Spirit is God's 
joy. And joy isn't happiness necessarily. It is happiness, but it's deeper. Happiness happens because things do happen or don't happen. Happiness. Joy is deeper seated. Now look, when somebody in your life dies, your dog passes away, you get, I mean, you're not like jumping up and down and clicking your heels. Oh, great. My dog died. This is fantastic. No one says that. Jesus grieved over people, his friends. But what you have is a deep-seated, rooted joy or hope, a settled expectation of God's coming good that you know God's going to work it out for his glory and your good. You, you get it? So, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see something. They get violently expelled from Antioch, Pisidia. Some believe when they were near the Mediterranean Sea down in Perga that some of them were having problems with malaria. That's extra biblical. It's not in the Bible. But some believe that, so they went up higher. Antioch's higher. It's a high elevation. And so they're probably like, oh, man, the Lord, yeah, he's saving us from the, the, the malaria. And man, this is great. He took us to Antioch. It's going to be amazing. We're going to build a megachurch here. I mean, we're going to have the rock wall, and we're going to have the smoke, and we're going to have everything. It's going to be amazing. I, you know, within probably a year or two, uh, there'll probably be enough funds in the tithe so that the pastor can get a big salary. And all of a sudden... God violently expels them from the city. And they could have done something that I don't want you to miss. Go, God, do you really know what you're doing? That what didn't even enter their mind. They were filled with joy over getting expelled. And with the Holy Spirit. They were filled. It's the key. Well, look what happens. It happened in Iconia that they went together to the synagogue. That's Paul's M.O. I showed you a synagogue earlier, or Mora did actually. And so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. So the Jews, there were some that believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, watch this, and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now I gotta, I gotta call another quick time out. Do you know that in the book of Luke, book of Luke, the book of Luke says, take heed how you hear. Did you know that? Take heed how you listen or hear. It's in Luke chapter 8. You're to pay attention to the way and to what you're listening to. Now, the Bible tells us that we're not to gossip or to, uh, as in, in, in a lot of places, not gossip, don't blaspheme our brothers and sisters, uh, don't stir up division, all that sort of thing. But I want you to see something. These people listened and it poisoned their minds. So I want you to think about this. Next time you're at the soccer game or the hockey game or the PTA meeting or wherever you are, the water cooler, and that person starts to talk about another person, well, you can't control what they say, but you can take heed to how you're listening. You know why? Because when you're together with a person and he's telling you some untruths or half-truths about another person, whether you like it or not, when you look at that person, you look at them now with bias. You think they've done what that person's done. And it's human nature. I'm not criticizing you. Well, anyway, I'm not criticizing you, but right? 
One thing has taught me being a lawyer, it's this. You better listen to both sides of the story. Both sides of the story before you talk and act. And I think this verse, these chapters are telling us, if you're at the water cooler and that guy is saying that other thing about that guy, you know what you say? Hey, listen, let's not talk about him. Let's just drink water and go on about your day. Here's the, thumb, the rule of thumb for those who are speaking. If you wouldn't say what you're saying to another person, if the person was standing there, listen, you get what I mean? Don't say it. And if you're one on the receiving end, I know it's juicy and gossipy. I know that. And it appeals to our carnal flesh. Tell them you don't want to listen to it. You can say it nice and walk away. Anyway, that's my rabbit trail. Because the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Listen, and it says they poisoned their minds. Now think about what the message was. It was life-saving. Gossip is from the devil. It's evil. It poisoned their minds against the brethren. It keeps people from eternal life. That's what this is saying. It's not some just funny thing. So, therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord. Oh, okay, gossip, uh, threats, uh, malaria, joy, let's stay. What a blessing. Why? Because they knew the message, and they were assured by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They spoke boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness, look at this, the thing, hey, look, look, folks, folks, the very thing that we're doing right now, you're diving in to the grace of God right now because you're exploring his word. You're bearing witness to the word of his grace. You get it? You're not just doing some academic exercise. You're here exploring God's grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The word comes first. Signs and wonders confirm the word and the multitude of the city were divided. That's not surprising. Jesus said, I came to divide, not make peace. What do you mean? Fights? No, not fights, but his message. <laughs> Folks, if there's somebody out there and they believe the universalist message, all people are going to heaven. Do you just want to say hi to them every day? Oh, hi, 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 until they die. Because Jesus said, my message will divide. You're, you're going to hear a message that is one way and true, and there's eternal life in it, and you need to tell people. That's why you need boldness, and that's why you need power and strength of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the city was divided. Oh, here's another thing. <laughs> I forgot one of the most important things, what the book of Acts is teaching you. Will you quit it with the Facebook posts about how? <laughs> what are you so surprised about that Christians are being persecuted? And we always will be until Jesus comes back. We're always going to be persecuted. Should you get into the political process and do your best? Yes. But quit being surprised. What are you surprised about? Look. 
And they're spreading lies and telling people, a Christian, what would you be surprised about? That unchristian people are saying you're whack? Well, of course they're going to. I'll get some emails about that one, but <laughs> that's okay. Listen, I know you can debate people, and I know you can do that, but listen, what I'm saying, why would you be surprised? You should not be surprised because the book of Acts teaches us that there's always going to be opposition to this message, and it's going to be devilish opposition, and it's going to be mean and angry opposition. Sounds like TV. Sounds like social media. Anyway, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews, verse 5, with their rulers to abuse and stone them. See, there's always opposition. They became aware of it and fled to Lystra. I find this interesting. They went now to Lystra. You see it there. They, did, they weren't martyrs on purpose. You get that? They didn't have this desire to die. I mean, of course, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul said, you know, I have this conflict. I mean, I want to be here and share the gospel, but I want to be in the presence of the Lord too. Yes, there is this conflict, but God's not saying just be some daring, you know, daredevil who's just flirting with death. No, here he says uh, he was okay with them fleeing on to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding regions. And what did they do when they got there? They skulked and they cried and they bemoaned the fact and they got mad at the Lord. It doesn't say any of that. They went and preached the gospel. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who'd never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Do you catch that? This is similar to Jesus' healing of a man in Luke 5 or some other healings. And also, Peter healed a guy when he was going up to the temple to pray. It's just like this. Why do you think this is put in here? is because Jesus, relying upon the Holy Spirit, heals. Peter, relying upon the Holy Spirit, heals. And now we're getting closer to Rome and closer to us. And he's saying, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, look, these things are going to happen. Supernatural things are going to follow your life. But it's not because you're some great person who should be in the spotlight. It's because of the amazing ability of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So as soon as he said, stand up straight on your feet with a loud voice, this guy leaped and walked. And we've talked about this a million times here at Calvary Chapel. Folks, if you want to see the beauty of the Lord and the miraculous of the Lord and the Lord work it out, he just wants you to have a flicker of faith of a, a, a mustard seed amount of faith. And when he looks down and sees the faith, like, like, can you imagine some of those people like at the pool of Bethesda, the guy at the pool of Bethesda, he'd been on this mat forever. And you know, when you're first reading the Bible, you go, did he really just say, get up, take up your mat and walk? Did Jesus really say that? Jesus, don't you know, it's been years since this guy's doing, but as soon as, look, look, as soon as the guy, just a flicker in his heart, had faith in what Jesus was saying, boom, up he came. And it's the same for you and I. 
You ever had that feeling, you know, you're praying, but uh, I know he can't really do it, but people are around, so I'll pray. And you say, well, that's, Pastor, you're the pastor. You shouldn't be saying that. But, you know, we say it a lot in our lives. When we say, but with the Lord. Yeah, I've been praying with it about that person, and then it comes. Here it comes, the big but. But. We'll just meet it with a flicker of faith, and that's where the beauty happens. When you say yes and amen to the promise, not no, you could never. Just the flicker of faith, up they come. And that happens in our spiritual life all the time. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in this uh, language, Lyconian or however you say it, language, they say this. That's funny. They can't speak that. But anyway, the gods have come down to us. Remember, they're in pagan cities, folks. They're in pagan cities. The gods have come down to us. And Barnabas, they called Zeus. Now, Zeus is the Roman name. You also might know Zeus as Jupiter. Jupiter is the Greek name. And Hermes, and Zeus is the big chieftain, the guy, right? Or, or, or Jupiter. He's the big guy. And Hermes is the spokesman. Or you might know Hermes as Mercury. The Greeks called him Mercury. Uh, the Romans called him Hermes. And they thought, listen, so now Paul and Barnabas are on a direct collision course with these pagan people who believe in a multitude of gods. And they're serious about it. And they come to them and they go, hey, uh, uh, Barnabas, you're Zeus, and Paul, you must be Hermes because you're the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, he brings out oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, and this is the same thing, uh, that many of the followers of Christ have done, but you see it constantly in a filled person. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they said, wow, wow, thank you so much. How you think of me. You must think I'm pretty eloquent to be doing this. Listen, many Bible commentators says this right here is the most dangerous point of Paul's ministry. Because, folks, when you stand up and people listen to you a lot, it could be, it could be intoxicating. And you could start to like the acknowledgement of how good you are when in reality, what we're doing, what people are doing who share the gospel are pouring people to Jesus. And here they deny it appropriately. This was, this was an important point in Paul and Barnabas's ministry. They tear their clothes. That's like the sign of blasphemy in the Old Testament. And they run in among the multitude and they say, men, why are you doing these things? We're just men. We're the same nature as you. We're not gods. And then look, folks, remember, uh, if you weren't here on Wednesday, we gave a way in which you could uh, evangelize almost every day of your life. Very easy. Just get into a, a spiritual conversation. I won't go back into that. But here, Paul and Barnabas just do it. Can you imagine? They go from you two are gods to don't call me that. Hold it, priest. Take your cattle and your livestock and turn them back around. I don't need the garland, and here's why. Because there's one God in heaven, and he's the living God. 
of Isaac or, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Watch, he just turns it right to an evangelistic message. And what he says is, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, these gods that are no gods at all, to the living God. That's on purpose. He says living God on purpose, who made the heavens. He's the creator, the sea, and all the things that are in them. You know, when you go down to the fish market and you grab the fish, that's from this God. That's what he's saying. He's giving you grace to feed you and feed the nations. He's, it's, he's the one who made the heavens. It's not, it's not Zeus who reigns up there. It's not Mercury or Hermes, same guy, uh, who are the spokespeople of the world. There's one living God who made the heaven, the earth, who in bygone generations, oh, look, this is so wonderful, allowed all nations to walk in their ways. God gives us free choice. Does God choose us? Oh, yeah. Does God give us free choice? Oh, yeah. And it's not mutually exclusive. Otherwise, it wouldn't be love. Nevertheless, verse 17, he didn't leave himself without a witness. In that, he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. That's a way of saying that they liked the message. And these... Listen, listen, these non-Jewish people, do you notice? He didn't use the Old Testament scriptures. Why would he? They didn't know him. <laughs> he used the glory of God in the heavens and what God has made and rain. You ever thought about rain? How rain comes down, gets recirculated and comes down again, and you say it's evolution? Are you serious? Are you serious? Nobody could believe that. Without, anyway. The Jews then from Antioch and Icona came there. This is what religion do, does. It hunts down graceful people. They follow them. These people who hate this message come from Antioch and Iconium, and these aren't close places that they can just train over in. They have to walk 15 miles a day, took several days to get there, tired, and they persuaded the multitudes. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Now watch. Don't you dare. Listen, listen, listen. Don't you dare say this is of the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that all men are good. And here's a, a few days ago, these men in these other cities may or may not have, or excuse me, a few days ago, the men in this city may or may not have been believers, but as soon as the multitudes came over and started persuading them, they turned on them and wanted to stone them. There's, the heart is deceptively wicked. Who can know it? The evil that lurks in the heart of men. You're not inherently good. The Bible says you're inherently a sinner now by nature and by deed. And you see it right here. And they come over and they stone Paul and dragged him out of the city. Folks, do you know that Paul wrote later on that whether he died, he doesn't know. But he, he rose up into the heavens and saw some things. Most people believe that this is the incident that he talks about in his later writings, where he examined the heavens. Was he dead or was he not dead? I don't know. 
Some people believe he wasn't. Some people believe he was. But whatever, Galatians tells us that he bore the marks of this stoning in his body. They stoned Paul and they drug him out of the city. And I want you to see something. The people who were stoning him thought he was dead. They thought he was dead. (laughs) However, when the disciples gathered around him, (laughs) come on now. You know, you ever, when you were a kid, have gravel for a driveway? Well, I have an older brother. And you know what he liked to do? I hope he's watching. (laughs) Throw some of those stones at me. Now, oh, come on, we're brothers. Come on. And I probably threw some back. Those stones hurt, and nobody likes to get hit with them. But that's not the stones they're talking about. We're talking stones. Kapow, kapow. This is the thud that you don't want to hear over and over. And he rose up. (laughs) And he went into the city. (laughs) Wow. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, look at it on the map, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They didn't forsake those churches. Do you catch that? How they got back into the city is an interesting thing to ponder. I don't know. It doesn't really tell you. But they were marked men in these cities. And they went back because what was of a great importance to them? That these churches flourish. And so how did they do it in the old, te- or excuse me, in the book of Acts for churches to flourish? What did they do? Here's what they did. They strengthened the souls of the disciples. I believe that means they got in the word. They taught them the word, the word of grace. Uh, They built them up in the things of Christ. And then they exhorted them to continue in the faith. You could look at John 8, 31 through 32, Acts 2, uh, 42. But they exhorted them. What does exhort mean? It means encourage. And I want you to recognize the word encourage means put courage into. It's not, oh, you're such a great guy. They were building them up for battle. Encourage. That's what they were doing. They encouraged them in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. If you've been here for any point of time, you would recognize that God gives us fiery trials and he tells us to count it all joy when we do. And that suffering, listen, if you think what we've been saying is radical so far, Listen to this. Suffering is not a bad word for the Christian. It only just enables you to glorify God in a higher and deeper manner and to fellowship with Christ in a way that you couldn't without the suffering. And so they taught them about tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. And then what did they do? They appointed leaders in the church. People who were already displaying the leadership qualities. They made leaders of the church And they prayed, they prayed with fasting, brought spiritual things to to the Lord without feeding the flesh in special times. And they commanded them to the, or they commended them to the Lord. They gave them over to the Lord's care. Now, 
Again, another timeout. Who here is a warrior? Raise your hand. Yeah, warrior. Come on, I'm putting my hand up. I'll put two up. I'm a warrior. Yeah, here's what the Lord is saying right there. Wouldn't Paul have naturally been a warrior? Oh, my goodness. Will this church survive or won't it survive? Will this church do well or won't it do well? Here's what Paul and his leadership team did. He did all he could, and he gave the church over to the care of God. And that's what we are to do in our prayers. There's just some places where we've done all we can do, but we just need the Lord. And he's got to do it, and you know it, and you just got to leave it with him. Okay, warriors, we unite, and we're going to do better. Anyway... So they prayed, they fasted, and after they'd passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, watch this, where they had at first been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. That's why I tell you, I think one, the, the two things that you and I should take away from this is that we should be overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit and listen, walk and live and share and love in the grace of God. And what does that mean? I gave you the definition. What does it mean? It means walking in the goodness of God. When you're going to the tribulation or through the tribulation, you're still walking in God's goodness. You recognize that God is doing something. He's not passive. He's active. Well, so they commended them, and that's what we're to do. We're to stay in the grace of God. And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Of course they did. I want you to hear something from youth, uh, old Youth for Christ uh, leader, national leader, Dr. Bob Pierce. Speaking on this chapter, he says, Others, like these apostles, have done so much with so little. While we, the current church, the contemporary church, have done so little with so much. Mm. Let me read that again. Others have done so much with so little, speaking of the apostles in the early church, while we have done so little with so much. Now listen, that's not a quote to make you feel guilty. That quote is for us so that we'll rely upon the right resources to do what I see in you that we want to do. And that's go and share and love and be with people who need Jesus and bring them into the family of God. Of course, God does all the work. We're just the vessel. Let's do this. As we ask the folks to come back up, we're going to worship to end. Let's do this, man. I mean, do you have a heart that wants to share the gospel? Do you want to live like the early church lived? Well, the first thing is, have you had this experience with the Lord? You and I and we should be overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. If that hasn't happened for you, come up after and let's talk about it and pray about it. But then here, let's, let's also remain in this. Let's keep relying 
upon God's grace, his resource, his ability to do what we do and not our own strength. I have this massive tendency, maybe you're like me, without saying it, what I say to the Lord a lot during the week, and and I don't say it, and it's probably subconscious, but you know what I say a lot, Lord, I got this. I know how to do this. No more. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come and we recognize that you empower the early church. And Lord, you're empowering our little church and you're empowering your church at large. And so we thank you for that. But I think, Lord, and we think that sometimes we remain weak, even with all the resources that we have now, because we don't recognize we need you every hour. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your grace, Lord. So help us, Lord, to live these things out as we move forward this week in sharing and loving in Jesus' name.